Hey, what's up? Hey. I thought about doing this sober, but I felt like it would be like a betrayal of the show, you know? Yeah, you don't you don't want to compromise your principles. Well, I don't know. It would it'd be like people would definitely know that we're like changing gears abruptly. Right. Well, this is some real behind the music type shit where now you feel like you need the drug in order to <laughs> access your well, I'm funnier. artistic expression. I'm funnier. Are you? On weed, I'm definitely funnier. To other people. Yeah, for sure. I'm more creative. Well, you, you you have to have done this show sober before, right? I, I used to do it like somewhat sober, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'd come to your place and then have like two drinks because I'd need to drive. Yeah. Once we stopped doing that, though, that really went out the window. <laughs> like yeah. I remember we did an episode from my house. Like I called in mm-hmm. and then uh, I kept watching porn and it kept making everything freeze. It's, it's the legendary lost episode. Sometimes you're too drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you're too drunk now, and I'm I'm grateful. That's what I, yeah, that's what I tried. I tried not to be too drunk, but like not sober, because I feel like if I was sober, I'd be dull. Mm-hmm. This is totally VH1 behind the music shit, man. <laughs> you're like I, you know, despite how well, many I mean, people some of the most that. creative people, some of the most creative people use substances to. Yeah, but then they get sober and say it was all bullshit, and they didn't really need the drug. You know, Sometimes just, they say that. And are there any people who like sobered up and they're like, "Yes, got a yes, quick yes. comedy." They're just not funny. Anymore. No, it's not like that. But they're like, it enabled me to do things I can no longer do, like sleep with strangers. No, like certain kinds of creativity are gone now. I think that's bullshit. I don't think you can be creative without drugs. When I when I. When I do cannabis... Hey, for all the kids listening to this, you don't need drugs. <laughs> when I do cannabis, I think of jokes. I think of jokes all the time. Yeah, but they're bad. Are they? <laughs> <laughs> yes. But when I'm not... When I'm not high, I'm not thinking... Of, I'm thinking of like one joke a day, max. Right? There is... Yeah. And I mean, some of these are gold. Some of these jokes are good. I mean, there's probably a little too many puns, right? I think puns are hilarious when I'm high. Right. Remember that time that you you thought of a joke when you were high that you were super proud of? And you're like, it has so many layers. And then we're like, oh, no, it actually just has one layer. Um, No. <laughs> when I'm high, I can think of the second layer. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't this time occurred. I was like there's one layer and you're like oh yeah I guess there's just one layer but often things have multiple layers <laughs> well that's a truism I think about that thing from um, the Pink Panther all the time where like he fi- we talked about this on the pod I think like someone breaks into his uh, hotel room dressed like him right Mm-hmm. And then um, someone murders him and then, like, puts him in the bathtub. 
the guy dressed like Clouseau. Mm-hmm. And then Clouseau gets laid, and then um, he and his partner, he goes into the bathroom and then sees that, you know, someone is in the bathtub and he looks like him, right? Mm-hmm. And then she, she comes in and she says, why is there a dead man in your bathtub dressed like you? And then he says, I could ask you the same question. (laughs) (laughs) Because, and there's like, I think there's like four layers to that right now. I think there's four layers. So the first layer We're we're waiting for our guests. We're waiting for our, our guest, data scientist and political strategist, David Shore. And Sam Grady. And Sam Grady. Is he a guest? He's kind of a host. I don't know. That's what you want to do. You want to make him a host. I think, yeah. Yeah, why not? Have we gotten any flack? Has anyone been like, got to can this Sam Grady character? No. He's great. No. He does good impersonations. There was one guy who liked when we just did an episode together. Is that the guy? Like that that was Vish. I sent you. That. I don't have to say people's names, but yeah, we got a lot to talk about. We got a lot to talk about with Sam. What do we have to talk about with Sam? Nira. Oh, is he flipping out about that? Yeah, I mean, in, in his way. Mm. In his he's way. He's acting like he's acting like he hates Nira. He did have, like, a hilarious thing where he tweeted, like, 20 tweets about Nira, mm-hmm. right? And then he said, and then he tweeted one more time, like, I actually don't know anything about Nira Tint. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Anna said last week. She's like, I hate her. Now, granted, I know nothing about her. Well, right, because it's all based around the Bernie campaign, right? What did she do around the Bernie campaign? Well, in 2016, she was like you know, pro Hillary, right? So like an advocate for Hillary during the primary. And she, she like posted a lot about, you know, all these, all the problems with Bernie. Right. And some of the things she posted were kind of cringe, right? Like she, I remember one thing that stood out to me is when like she, she really went after killer Mike because killer Mike loves strip clubs. And so she tried to make that into a, like a feminist thing. Mm hmm. And I'm sure in her heart of hearts, she's Wait, bothered by Killer Mike clubs. was a Bernie supporter. Yeah, like major advocate, hip hop artist Killer Mike. Okay, well this is dumb. What? Uh, I don't know. Attacking who? Who cares if Killer Mike likes strip clubs? Yeah, so she did stuff like that, right? That made 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 her seem like a kind of a cringe figure. Yeah. And then there was the whole Brunig thing. They have all these reasons they hate her. These like 2016 campaign long lore. list of grievances. Mm-hmm. But they're not things that matter in the day to day lives of Americans at all. <laughs> right. Right. And I think like she's not going to make mischief at the OMB. Like I'm not concerned. If he had made her like um, something that she wasn't qualified for. Even chief of staff, I wouldn't be totally comfortable with. What I am comfortable with is how fucking funny it is that he picked her. It's like the most based, like, (laughs) just wilding out. Like, it's the most 
hilarious person he could put in his cabinet. Because it's because she's such a light, lightning rod. Yes, mm-hmm. because it's like, and I'm sure when Hillary lost, they thought they didn't. They never had to worry about Nira being in a cabinet again. You know, <laughs> I didn't think he'd pick her. It was a shock to me, because like I, I don't think they're like tight or anything, right? Yeah, his other picks are like you know Biden trying not to rock the boat with someone political. But does she need Senate confirm? She she does need Senate confirmation. She does. Yeah, we could talk about that too. Like, will she get confirmed? Lindsey Graham says there's there's not a snowball's chance in heck. Yeah. Okay. So there. My big issue with it is, it's already petering out, right? And it's two months away, right? What's already petering petering out? The anti-Nira campaign. Mm. I mean, it doesn't need to peter in or out. They just got the votes, man. If they don't want her, they can block her. Oh, well, I'm not like... I mean, the left shit doesn't matter. Obviously, they're not blocking her if we win the runoffs, right? They're not blocking anything ever again if we win the runoffs. First of all, it'd be really dumb to make this the confirmation battle, Nira. It's such a minor post, right? I mean, who's to say they're not just going to block all of them or block a bunch of them? If you do all, if you do that, then Biden just has acting, an acting cabinet, right? They Is don't there, want to do. There's that. There's got to be some disadvantage to that, right? Kind of, not really. Just doesn't look as legitimate, and their uh, status is temporary, presumably. Well, there's all kinds of like hoops you have to jump through, but like if they block everybody, that's you know he has to have a cabinet. So then it becomes meaningless to block everyone. They have to pick their battles somewhat. I gotcha. That's a good point. Like if they if they block everyone, then then he'll just like make, you know. Maybe he threw her out as bait to get blocked. This is the Biden. Yeah, that's one that's one thing people think, right? Chess master. Oh, Sam. Just uh finishing up school. Mm. Oh. Yeah. When do you wrap up school? Um, today is like the last official day of classes, and then next week would be finals week. Quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's just a, a bunch of my big papers due next week. Oh shit! Yeah. Okay. Ooh. Well, good luck, man. Um, is this your senior year? Don't worry about it. That's what your advisor told you. <laughs> yeah. It's. It's uh. We're, we're at the end is the beginning of the end will be in sight. Okay, so right. It's not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end. I was just, I was just wondering, is like a senioritis situation. I'm I'm just I'm just really tired. It's been a really it's been an exhausting end of 2020. I had an election. Uh, I've had to adjust to online only classes, which I don't love. Uh, there's, it's been exhausting as it has been for everyone. I'm sure. Yeah. It's been a real bitch, man. It's been a bitch of a year. There's certain people <laughs> that have, uh, a certain amount of privilege and, you know, work in the medical field or insurance. <laughs> hey, you never know, man. You never know what people are going through. You could be a billionaire on a yacht about to blow That's your brains so out. The saddest man in the world could be a billionaire on a yacht. 
Yeah, probably maybe. might be. Yeah. I bet you Elon Musk gets sad. So you guys can hear me clearly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, you sound good. Huh. Guess I didn't eat all that gain. You know, hey, <laughs> when it comes to laundry, you don't need all that gain if you have some shout. That's pretty yeah. funny. This is why Matt does drugs, <laughs> so he can come up with winning material like this. Yeah, I, I he really could not wanted access to like, if sober. I really wanted to be able to do that for this episode, but I've got a big thing due at eleven fifty nine p.m. And but also, guys, we need I've to got be to professional. Go to the store. This is a big opportunity for our show to be professional and ask like important questions. Mm-hmm. You said you don't have anything. You have nothing to ask. Oh, she's done research. <laughs> I have some questions to ask. John, did you read? Did you do research? I did. Yeah, I read a bunch of his articles. Good. Well, then we're halfway there. Um. Do you guys not like this guy? Do you mock him online? Oh, we like this guy. We're short pilled. We're totally short pilled. Yeah. He was fired from the DNC. Am I correct in working? He was. He was working for the DNC, and he was fired. He was working for like a data analysis firm, and then on Twitter, I think he. He published a thing about how nonviolent protest um, pulls better than violent protest. And then he got fired for that. Like, fired for, like, linking that article. Like, the most anodyne, obvious shit ever. He's like, he's. we're not going to ask oh, him about it. peaceful protest pulls better than burning buildings down. Oh, my God. Fire that I guy. I don't want to get into it with him. No, I'm not going to bring it up. He's like the one actual person who's a victim of cancel culture. Right, uh, I don't know the only person. But well, he got he legit got fired. He's definitely a victim of cancel culture. <laughs> he is like, but it was like the most shining example. Like even the most, you know, hardened people. Like people, people say like he's the exception that proves the rule that cancel culture doesn't exist. Or he's the one example where no one can come up with an explanation of why it's okay. Mm-hmm. But reading about reading his stuff, I think it's I think he's really alt center pilled, you know, because he's like a real lefty who wants to win and is trying to figure out how we win. That's me. I'm a lefty who wants to win. Yeah, let's figure out how to win. Right. Now, wait a second. He said starting in 2011, I had been assuming that a diversifying country would lead to a rise in openly racist right wing populism. I says that didn't happen. It took five more years. Right. I don't know. Did he write that in 2011? Uh, no, I, I don't know. He posted this in May 2020. And he said, starting in 2011, I had been assuming that a diverse graduate would lead to a rise in openly racist right-wing populism. But that didn't happen. I greatly overestimated the extent to which college-educated white people would value both their material interests and their racial solidarity. Instead, college-educated people as a group have trended tremendously toward Democrats. Oh. Yeah. Right, he's saying that the diversifying electorate isn't what caused it. Like, the professional class did not get more racist. Sure. Right, so he's arguing that we're having an increasing um, education gap. Right, the education gap. I think he's sort of implying that uh, that's, like, starting to cleave uh, the ethnic gaps. Like, you know, pulling non-white voters for Trump. People submitted questions and they asked if he could do like a power ranking of the races. And again, I think that's inappropriate. We shouldn't ask him that. Power ranking. How about yeah. just like Biden performance 
Is that something you think he could weigh in on? Sure. I mean, that's the big thing we got to ask him, right? Yeah, like how did how how well was the Biden campaign run A through F or something? What could have they done better? I also want to like know like you know why why does Susan Collins happen? You know, I definitely want to know why Susan Collins happens. She got political cover <clears throat> with RBG dying, and she was able to say, "Now hold up, we shouldn't." We need to appoint this justice after the presidential election. Give the people a just a, a true a choice, and that gave her political cover. Oh yeah, so like that allowed her to. Yeah, I mean that's possible. That was Schumer's analysis, and I gotta say, I think it's spot on. Schumer's been Schumer's been saying some accurate things lately. Well, well, that's unnerving. He's under threat. He was like, "Sorry about Cal Cunningham. I fucked that one up." He's he's going on an apology tour. And then he said, like, we really should have gotten Stacey Abrams to run for the Senate. He tried. He did his very best. Why didn't she do it? I don't know. 2022 governor race. She convinced of Raphael Warnock's uh, quality. That governor's race is going to be lit. I know. (laughs) The primary is going to be lit. The base is abandoning him. Oh, there's going to be a lot of fun primaries across the board. <laughs> but the Georgia one in particular, I think, the Georgia one and the Arizona gubernatorial primaries. Yeah. Like absolute, you know, trolls are going to get the nominations in, that, in those. Like, Arpaio, is he dead yet? He's never going to. He's not. He wouldn't win. <laughs> I mean, you know, is the guy who shot Giffords, is he out of prison yet? Like, he, he might be able to win in Arizona. I don't think he's that ideologically coherent. <laughs> I actually don't know. I don't know who the Republicans in, because obviously McSally can't do it again. The the guy the guy who shot Giffords uh, really strongly uh, has a stance. He's very strongly against the CIA taking his free speech. Uh, I, I recall in one of uh, the videos when that happened, uh, the, one of the videos he posted, he uh, he had a long speech about the CIA taking his free speech. And I thought that was interesting. He's opposed to the CIA taking his free speech. <laughs> well, yeah. How do they do that? I don't know. He didn't he didn't really explain much further. Uh, he I, in the video, he like passed a guy and he's like, that guy was trying to take my free speech. Oh. So. There's people on campus, too, who were trying to take his free speech. So he's a little crazy. That guy. Yes, indeed. That's wasn't that's the most the rational bit. thing he did. Yeah. So, Sam, have you made peace with Nira? Uh, I've made peace with the fact that if she uh, is confirmed and secures that job, then she and the K-Hive and all the liberals, they're allowed to dunk on the left in perpetuity regarding Nira. Oh, wow. If she... If she gets that job. And if she doesn't, if she doesn't get confirmed, uh, the opposite is true. And the left is allowed to dunk on her uh, a lot, even more. If she doesn't get confirmed, that's how you end up with Senator Tandon. She has to take it. From that's what, how you end what up state? with President Tandon. What state is she, would she be running in? Any she's going to she's gonna primary Warren. Oh, interesting. I don't know where. I'd probably vote for her in that primary. Really? Where I to live in that state. Yeah, I think so. Why? Well, I want to support uh, strong women of color, especially... Oh, you have to be so attracted to her. Especially, uh, you know, from South Asia. Subcontinent. Yeah, I'd want to support them. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Not buying it. Buying it for a minute. Oh shit! Our guest yeah. is hopping on. Cool. Matt, did you did you want to do an introduction or? Oh, you think I should do the introduction? First question is, do we want to do one at all? Well, he needs to hop on, and then we need to like introduce ourselves to him. Okay. I don't think he's listened to the show. We should ask him that. <laughs> right? It's a little awkward. Shouldn't we explain what the show is about? Have you uh, had a chance to catch up on our back episodes? Right. How many Centrist Madness episodes would you say? <laughs> First question. <laughs> what do you think of our podcast? What are some things you like? What are some things you we like? We should ask that more often all the time, right? How can we make the show better? Right? We don't ask that enough. Can you imagine a Terry Gross interview where she's like, and before you go, how can I improve as an interviewer? That would be kind of interesting. Right? Yeah. It would get old. It would get stale. You can't do it every time. Right. It's good for us because the joke is that we uh, don't know what we're doing. So I think it would be funny in general to like, if you were like, and it's probably been done before, like I could see Letterman doing it. Like you just have a really bad interview and just be like, where did this go wrong? Where, where did we, <laughs> this interview, this interview was terrible. What happened? What did we do wrong? And you know what? That's when it becomes a great interview. Yeah. Cause that's real. It's time to get real. Yes. Hey, if you 74 comma three zeros, that's 74,000. Okay. Just checking. You know, well, there's certain uh, areas where I get confused, and I just wanted to check. Hey, David. Hello. Hey. How's it going? Okay. I think I can hear you all now. No, sounds good. Cool. Hey, David. Welcome to Centrist Madness. We're super excited to have you. Pleasure's all mine. So you have been a you're a data scientist and political consultant. Is your day to day like writing code, or is it more like analysis and such? Or yeah, it's it's a mix of both. Um, you know, admittedly, uh, I, I work with generally with teams of people who are a lot better at writing code than I am. But uh, historically, I've uh, I got my start as a math major and just like a junior analyst and wrote a lot of code back in the day. Uh, but a lot of it is just, uh, you know, thinking carefully about thinking carefully about measurement, um, and data collection. And, you know, honestly, I find, you know, we do lots of, uh, complicated modeling, but a lot of what we do ends up just being, uh, common sense or basic cross tabbing. Right on. This was a rough year for the polls. We can say that, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so. Uh, I think that pollsters are understandably usually fair, uh, a little bit defensive. Uh, it's they get a lot of criticism uh, for what's ultimately a really hard problem. Uh, but this was a fairly bad year for the polls. You know, just put some numbers on it. I think that uh, the average uh, bias in terms of support for the presidency was like 2% in support and something like 3% in margin. Sorry, uh, 3% for the Senate, and that's 6% in margin. Uh, and, you know, if you look at 
some subgroups, like if you look at the Hispanic vote, it seems like the public polls, you know, said that there'd be a one to 2% decline. And if you look at the precinct results, it really looks like something like an 11 or 12% decline, which is crazy. You know, that's like if the day after the election, uh, Massachusetts had been in a recount, like an 11% polling error is kind of unheard of. So yeah, I, I think this was like a fairly bad year for, for polling. Uh, and I think that you know, the big thing that bothers me the most about it is that a lot of these errors that, exi- that you know, existed have happened for three cycles in a row. Uh, I think this, this, this polling, you know, this year was much worse for polling than 2016 in a lot of ways. But it also featured the same general pattern of overestimating support in uh, working class white areas in the Midwest that happened in 2018 and 2020. And, you know, I don't blame pollsters for getting, you know, uh, for making new mistakes like this COVID stuff or this Hispanic stuff. But I do blame folks for making the same mistakes. You should always have new, exciting mistakes. That's what we should strive for. That's what was so surprising to me is I was convinced that, you know, not having much expertise, but just common sense, like thinking they're going to overcompensate for the mistakes of last time and doing all this adjustment for, you know, education levels and stuff. But Apparently, we have the air in the same direction substantially again. Yeah, I think I think the it's important to stress how weird this is. Uh, it's very unusual for polling, in at least in the context of the U.S., to persistently have the same bias and direction for multiple years in a row. Uh, and I think the reason why this is happening is is basically data science related or methodologic uh, method related, which is that. Fundamentally, uh, polling uh, response rates are so low that uh, traditional methods for correcting surveys, you know, no longer really work anymore. You know, to put this kind of succinctly, pollsters have basically been using the same methodology. You know, going back to the 1940s, dial a thousand random numbers, you ask them like five or six questions, and then you weight them back to the census, and you know, the problem is that those five variables, age, race, gender, education, they're no longer enough to accurately de-weird the people who respond. Mm-hmm. In order to do that, you really have to survey. You have to adjust for a much larger number of things than you previously had to before. And those that involves a fairly fundamental change to methods and business models. Like at the very least, you need to survey a lot more people if you're going to, you know, adjust for 30 covariates. Uh, but also it, it, you have to hire machine learning engineers and it all becomes very difficult. And that's not me, you know, um, shitting on pollsters. It's a very hard job. Uh, but I do think that, you know, coming out of 2016, they really, uh, denied there was a problem. You know, there was an, uh, their professional association had like a 2016 postmortem, which basically denied that anything had gone wrong. And I think that I, I do blame them for that as an industry. They really should own up for, uh, when they're wrong. Right. I, I know you had, I saw you post a theory or a hypothesis. The reason COVID made everything weird is that Republicans were leaving the House and, and Democrats were staying home, right? So Democrats were more likely to answer the phone. Yeah. Why didn't partisan waiting fix that? So, you know, the important thing about, you know, people talk about partisan waiting, you need to have a target to wait things to. Um, you can't, there's no way to wait by party ID. If you could, there'd be, you know, if the government just like in the census asked people what party they identified as, uh, then we'd have very few polling error 
and you know, what's funny is in Sweden, they actually do that. Um, you know, every six months, the government actually does a big survey asking a uh, vote intent. And I think every six months and you could, if we all lived in Sweden, bowling would be easier, I think. Um, but we don't have that. And, and that's s- why they have socialism. <laughs> that's right. There's some pretty crazy stuff. There's really some pretty crazy stuff that the Swedish government uh, does. In the 1990s, they did a survey, a personality survey of one third of all of the dogs in Sweden. Uh, don't ask me how I know this. this is, I, uh, awful. Uh, when I was a grad student, I had to try to analyze some of this data. One of my friends took a bus to Stockholm, tried to get a bunch of you know floppy disks. Long story. But what wow. I'll say is that with party ID waiting... How many, are, how many were good boys? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. It's Sweden. Um, but so what I'll, uh, what I'll say about party ID waiting is, you know, when people talk about party ID waiting, the problem is that partisanship changes over time. Uh, you, you know, and there's no ground truth that you get from the census or from the voter file. And so what people will do is that they'll do these like long run surveys where they'll like, especially if you're a web pollster, you'll say, I don't really trust these web IDs. So I'll look at Gallup or something and see what they say about party ID. But the problem is that this just impacted all of those different things. You know, I, I, there were news stories about how democratic partisan identification is up and it's very hard to distinguish partisan identification is up from actually a bunch of Democrats just were stuck at home and started answering the phone. Right. So because we don't know actually how many people are Democrats or Republicans, it's hard to control for that in the poll. I just thought that they would be able to like look back at, at 2018 and 2016 and figure out party ID based on that. Well, it's not in the election results. You know, you can ask people how they voted in the, in the previous election. Uh, and that's something that a lot of these pollsters did. YouGov especially. But one of the problems with that is that it turns out that there's a really persistent thing, you know, called winner's bias, uh, which is if you look, uh, if you look at the past, I don't know, 20 exit polls, the percentage of people who say that they voted for the person who won in the previous election is very high. In 2008, for example, 55% of people said they voted for George Bush. And, you know, it varies by cycle. And so it's all a very hard problem. Uh, You know, you can ask about uh, past election results. And I think a lot of people tried to do it. And I think in, in retrospect, it, it didn't work. Um, I, what it, I, I thought was funny about it was like, you know, you can only test this theory with the election, right? Up until the election, there was no way to test this theory. Well, you know, it depends on what you mean by test, right? Like, you know, one of the, some of the data I shared with the New York Times is I looked at, because we match our survey respondents to the voter file. Uh, you know, or at least the firms I, I worked with did. And so, you know, what we could do is we could see what percentage of people who answered the phone uh, were Democratic primary voters. And, you know, what you could see is it just spikes in March. Oh, and, okay. Yeah. And so, you know, it's kind of this flat line for all of 2019 that spikes in March by about three or four percent and it stays at this elevated level. And so that's why I'm like pretty sure that the theory is right. You know, the problem is that you can, ahead of time, it's very hard to say, well, a bunch of Democrats, you know, you have this observable characteristic that did jump, but even if you try to control for it, you know, most people didn't vote in a, in a, Dem- in a Democratic or Republican primary. Uh, you really have this, even if you try to wait by past vote, you know, uh, who, who, you, uh, who, who you say you voted for in 2016, 30% of the electorate didn't vote in 2016. And those people didn't vote in a Democratic primary. So even if you tried to adjust for whether or not you were a Democratic primary voter, you wouldn't capture these, you know, new voters. And that's the thing that's really scary is like if you de- detect something on an observable characteristic, if you if you detect a bias on an observable characteristic, there could be a 
totally different bias, uh, you know, that you can't control for. Well, you, the same thing would be affecting your unobservables too. So there aren't any silver bullets. It's actually a very, very hard problem. Unless you're paying people a thousand dollars and, you know, boosting your, um, participation rate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the GSS, they, uh, they spend about a thousand dollars per person, uh, and, uh, they survey 2000 people and, uh, it helps, it helps a lot. Sure. I know that the Trafalgar group measures like yard signs. <laughs> they have, they have other metrics they use, um, yeah, I, I mean, okay, that's, you know, them, I'm sure they're not a serious shop. I don't know uh, what they do. But, you know, I think there there are other metrics people use to look at elections. You know, uh, one of my favorites is pioneered by Daily Coast Elections is something called the Special Elections Index. There's special elections happening all over the country all the time. And, uh, and they basically, they create an index of how much, you know, they under or overperform, you know, the previous presidential and in 2018, this really, you know, predicted that there'd be a big democratic wave, and there was. But, you know, one of the problems with even that metric is it turns out that even though 2018 was like a very good year, it wasn't nearly as good a year as you would have expected from the special elections index. And I think right. the same is true of right. 2020. And the reason is that we just started to do better among the kind of people who vote in low turnout elections. You know, the turnout by support correlation has changed. Um, and so, so we're gonna have to stop rocking the vote now. <laughs> All this, like, t- like every app I open is like telling me to vote. We rocked the vote with moms and dads in the suburbs. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I mean, turnout, uh, turnout in the suburbs probably probably did did go up. Probably had something to do with it. But I think it is a funny. It's a funny thing. For the longest time, uh, there was this idea that Democrats do a lot better with non you know, with non-voters than voters. And I think that's still true, but not by nearly as much as it used, as it used to be. And I think in places like the Midwest, it's, it's not true at all. Uh, and, you know, I think this really showed even in 2016, you know, Oregon implemented automatic voter registration. And what was really interesting about this group of people, you know, Oregon's a super white state, so the trade-off would be different. I'm not saying that ABR isn't good for Democrats, but uh, in Oregon, the people who they registered even though they would have voted for Obama at much higher rates than the state overall, uh, in uh, with respect to 2016, they were roughly as Trumpy, you know, as the state as, as the state, and it didn't actually have much of an impact. And you know, you see this a lot. It, it impacts the math around, around felon disenfranchisement because a lot of these, you know, white white prisoners used to be a relatively leaning group, and now they're not. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's a real real paradigm shift. Higher turnout is not necessarily uh, good anymore. Now, is that why the polling in 2018 was so much better than 2016 and 2020? We're just getting better at polling low turnout elections? Well, I think partly. Uh, I think there's something to that. But I would stress that, you know, the polling in 2018 really was, it was better than in 2016, but not actually by that much. You know, the national polling in 2016 was about right. Uh, and that's something all of these pollsters would cling to. And the national polling in 2018 was also about right. But the state-by-state error patterns were pretty similar. Uh, I think they weren't as pronounced, but they, they were definitely there. Where And we people just didn't notice because there were a bunch of races that were much closer than people expected. You know, West Virginia right, Senate, Ohio Senate. We also Senate. had a Florida problem in 2018. Yeah. I, I think, uh, in general, demographic change contrary to everyone's expectations, is pushing Florida to the right. Uh, This is something that, you know, we 
you know, I've, I've, I, this is something that, you know, I had done a lot of research on a couple months ago, which is, you know, everybody thinks, you know, Florida population is getting less white, et cetera. But actually, you know, what's really happening is that there's this endless, you know, red army style wave, as Patrick Feeney calls it, of non-college whites moving into uh, retirees, moving into Florida every single year. And it actually makes a big difference. Migration just by itself, you know, moved Florida about 0.8% to the right relative to where it would have been if nobody had moved. So it's really a non-trivial thing. Florida is uh, right. moving to the right over and over. People just think about babies when it comes to population and they don't think about uh, migration. Yeah. Um, like, Col- like Colorado is a blue state now because of migration. They didn't all of a sudden have this baby boom. Right. Uh, that, that, that's exactly right. And I think people don't realize, you know, they think about migration. Like Montana, great example. Everyone's like, oh, there's all these hipsters moving into, from, uh, moving into Missoula. Actually, it, you know, migration pushes Montana to the right by about half a point every cycle. And the reason for that is just that all of the 18-year-olds leave. And, you know, Miami has a similar thing. Like all of the college-educated, um, as someone who was born, actually, in, in Miami, I'm a native Floridian, I, uh, me and everybody else uh, in my high school cohort who went to college all left Florida and no longer right. live there. Um, and that's that's a real phenomenon. Uh, you know, and Colorado, uh, one, has a lot of pull, ski resorts, all of that stuff. But, uh, you know, two, uh, does a better job of retaining its young people, which Montana doesn't. So it was, it was really weird to see uh, Trump do better with uh, African-Americans than um, previously. And some of the white vote, uh, non-white vote, uh, starting to break Republican. Do we have any data on why that's happening? Do we know like what what the concerns of these voters are, or what's luring them away to the Republican Party? Do we even have hard data on this election? I'm I'm still waiting for uh, everything to be finalized before I start looking. You're waiting for the all the certifications. Yeah. I don't, I, it's not real what, to what me you, until I mean, the electoral Sam, college. Sam what ran for mean? office. I don't know if you know about Sam Grady's run for office. He ran for uh, state senate. Ohio District 2. State house in uh, Ohio. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it sounds sounds brutal. Um, <laughs> I, could, I, I, I could never be a politician. Um, but, you know, what I'll say about non-white, uh, the non-white vote, uh, there's a lot we don't know. Um, uh, but you know, in terms of what we do know, I, I think the basic shape of things, uh, in terms of the aggregate vote totals are, are fairly clear, which is, you know, roughly speaking, we did better. I think maybe, uh, we did better among college whites. We did about the same among non-college whites as we did in 2016. You know, the black vote decreased by single digits. It's uh, unclear exactly how much, but my guess is probably something like 2%, um, overall. Uh, and then we had a very large drop among Hispanic voters. Uh, it will take a while for us to know exactly how much, um, but probably on the order of like 11 to 12%. I was looking at the county results and it didn't seem like Texas was actually that bad in the Latino counties. I would, I mean, I would push back. Like, you know, the majority of Hispanic counties in, uh, in Texas, you know, were had, saw pretty crazy drops. Uh, and, you know, just to put, uh, put some numbers on that. I mean, you have stuff like Zapata County or, I mean, I, I was actually just looking at, um, I, just looking at it by congressional district, which is what uh, I was doing earlier. You know, let me pull that up. I mean, I, I think in the, in the 
in the districts in Texas that are majority Hispanic, there were nine or ten percent drops, and you have to remember that those counties themselves, that those districts themselves, are only about fifty percent Latino. Uh, like this is one of the things that's tricky. If you just do a scatter plot of percent Hispanic versus swing on like a precinct level or a county level, it's pretty clear. Uh, and I think it points to something like eleven to uh, something like an eleven to twelve percent drop. The thing that's really hard about this is that it wasn't really picked up in the polls, which I think is. Really not talked about. It's a pretty crazy polling fa- failure. Um, like, I, I think in general, this drop among Hispanic voters, like, if we had dropped by, like, 3% among Hispanic voters, that would have been very newsworthy. Dropping by 11% is really crazy. There were some poll. I remember some polls that were ominous with Hispanics. Yes, but ominous meant a drop of 3 or 4%. Right. Right. Now, this is much, much worse. Uh, you know, if you if you look at polls in Florida, you know, it looks about even, maybe a one, two percent drop. And like in Florida, we probably, you know, honestly, if you look at Miami Dade, it's 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 pretty brutal. There are, there are precincts where we drop by thirty percent. Um, you know, particularly the plurality um, uh, Latin American ones. So you know, I, I think in terms of why it happened, I, I, I'm going to be honest and say I don't know, but I do think that there are some important stylized facts about this drop that I think are interesting. You know, I tweeted about this today, but I think something that I find really interesting is that it's not just that these districts trended against, you know, uh, Biden, but actually our Hispanic incumbents generally underperform Biden in almost, you know, there's there's about 10 majority Hispanic uh, districts and almost all of them, except for uh, Henry Cellular. I might not be saying that right. Um, Cuellar, fuck. Uh, um, I'm, yeah, yeah, Cuellar, fuck. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he outperformed Biden by quite a bit, but everyone else, you know, generally underperformed Biden, sometimes well, and substantially. He, and he did that because he's, like, you know, a Republican. Yeah. He's, like, he's like the most conservative damn in Congress, probably. Yeah, there, there, are, there are real... I mean, look, Biden got 52% of the vote. In that district, so it's a swing district now. I guess it's, right. it's good. Okay. I don't know. Um, yeah, it used to be. It used to not be like that. You know, I think Clinton got sixty percent, and we were like, "Why?" That's do we a have crazy this? district, though. Yeah, it's like that's like I, you know, that district's like huge. Yeah, if I recall correctly. It, it, it's physically fairly. I mean, if they, if I remember correctly, they did the weird like salami strips to split out the you know uh-huh. the different districts. But you know, I think people don't realize. I mean, people talk about his district. There's another one. Um, uh, Texas 15th, which is, you know, thematically similar, uh, where, you know, we actually Biden got 51% and the House Democrat, you know, Vicente Gonzalez also only got 51%. So, you know, right. it is a real, you get a real counterfactual because Texas 28th, Texas 15th, I think, I think they're fairly similar. Um, and, you know, uh, they're right next to each other. So moderation really, really helps a lot. But I think it's really notable that these Democratic House incumbents, underperformed Biden. And, and, you know, you actually see a similar similar story on a state ledge level. You know, we lost, uh, there was a seat in New Mexico uh, that we lost by something like 30, I think. Uh, you know, we won by 20 to 30 points before, and we actually just lost the seat. Um, and, you know, if you look at this down ballot, I think in, in Florida, across, you know, elsewhere, I think it's pretty, it's similar. And I think that really rules out some of the lazy explanations I've seen for this. A lot of people have been like, oh, yeah, Hispanics just love incumbents. And it's like, well, they don't like their Democratic incumbents, apparently. Uh, and I think that that tells me that this is probably more of a shift in party ID uh, than it was a shift in something involving Biden or Trump. 
And I think that, you know, personally to me is evidence for something like the potential for defund or socialism to have caused an issue. Um, but the only caveat I'll say there is it's all very hard because the polling was wrong. And so, you know, you have to look at precinct data and we're really going to have to pro- collect precinct data everywhere before we really have a, a good idea. And I also want to stress, it's also possible that there was some turnout related stuff here too. It's a little, it's hard to say. It'll be a oh, while. Right. before. We- well, I think people are kind of overlooking that is that I, I was, I always was struggling with it. I thought that we were in great shape because, you know, People who wait for election day 4% of the time, they don't get there. Something like that, right? And I thought, hey, we're, we're voting as soon as possible. The side that's voting as soon as possible is probably going to win, right? Um, but maybe mail turnout is complicated and difficult in ways we didn't realize. And also, we had an amazing weather day on election night. Election day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Amazing weather day on election day. Now, now Democrats have to pray for rain. Uh, very different uh, <laughs> fast. I, as as far as we can tell, as far as we can tell from Georgia, you know, I think turnout ended up not playing a particularly large role. It seems like things were like a little bit more Republican than expected, but maybe like half a point to seven tenths of a point, um, and which doesn't explain a three point you know national polling error. But it is possible that the story is that there could be a different story for Hispanic voters, uh, and you know that that is something I've I've heard. Uh, people say that, you know, maybe uh, these lower turnout uh, Hispanics who are less engaged in politics were more likely to be right wing. And, you know, that's something we'll have to decompose. When I look at precinct data in Houston and Dallas among majority Hispanic precincts, there's like a pretty clear relationship between age, um, you know, age and and swing. But it actually goes in the other direction. You know, older, older precincts swung more. I think the fact that polls didn't see this coming also tells you something that, you know, who are the groups, who are the Hispanic voters who aren't answering these surveys? And I think the answer is like largely older Hispanics, um, Hispanics who speak Spanish as their as their primary language, you know, men who I think people don't realize answer surveys at much lower rates than, than women. Um, and so I think that there's some story about like kind of socially conservative, older Hispanic men who, you know, might be skeptical about defund the police or might be skeptical about um, socialism. Just to add on the socialism piece, which I think, you know, provides a little bit of evidence. I mean, I'm, I'm a socialist, so I don't know. Um, but uh, I, I think so there's... you're saying Trump turned out the new voters who are Spanish-only speaking. Yeah. And, and, coming. and older. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting because Spanish-speaking Hispanics generally are, are considered to be more democratic than English-speaking Hispanics. Um, but, you know, I think this might have... Like, in order for there to have been this, you know... It, you can construct a world a world where these Spanish dominant Hispanics who generally don't answer phone surveys, um, you know, they must have swung by a lot. And that plays into a lot of, you know, people talk about WhatsApp groups, they talk about, you know, all this other stuff. I think the socialism thing is like a real theory worth considering insofar as, you know, Michael Bloomberg did actually pretty well in these Hispanic counties in South Texas. And if you look at the precinct results in Florida, you know, the percentage of people who were born in Colombia or Venezuela is highly correlated, you know, with swing. Uh, there's a part of Miami, a neighborhood called Doral, which is like, you know, predominantly Venezuelan or Colombian. And uh, it's uh, like 30 point shifts. So I, I think there's probably something there. We, we don't talk about the Bloomberg supporters, <laughs> right? 
Well, <laughs> except on this podcast, I'm sure. But, but yeah. like, no, we do not talk about. <laughs> we're the alt center, not the center. But like the 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 Bloomberg supporters, like they were out there for a while there, right? Like his poll numbers were shockingly high, and we didn't they really were. make an effort to understand who those people were. I don't. It think. was great to see a billionaire standing up to, <laughs> for himself for once, you know. I mean, I, after all I think the, the shit they take, I think the key thing here is just to realize that. You know, they were out there and they were largely non-white. That was actually in a lot of ways Bloomberg's yes, face. Yes. Um, you know, he, he did very, you know, he did best in, uh, I mean, it was a weird coalition of, you know, rich, rich white people and, you know, the Hispanics in the Rio Grande. But uh, that was his coalition. He actually, you know, I remember I, I was doing a lot of primary polling and we were really trying to figure out it looked like Biden was going to collapse. And, you know, the polling was like a fairly even split between like, you know, Bernie and Bloomberg in the Deep South. And so it would have been a fascinating alternate dimension, you know. Uh, yeah, you know, maybe there was an electability argument that was true. Yeah, I'm sure Bloomberg would have done better than Biden. Uh, I, I'm not saying I'm glad, he, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I didn't. I'm glad he's not the president. I don't, I don't know. Bloomberg probably doesn't listen to this podcast, but I'm sure he would have done better. At the very least, he would have spent more money. Um, you think Bloomberg would have done better? Anyway. See, I don't. I, I was going to ask you that. So, if you look at the primary, who do you think would have done the best in this election? Yeah, I mean. I don't know. Um, I'm going to put Bloomberg to the side because, you know, the argument there is, you know, there were a lot of Bloomberg support was fairly correlated with like defections from the Democratic Party. And so I, I think I think there there is something there. Um, but otherwise, I think, you know, in retrospect, Biden was probably the safest bet. You know, I think that at the time there were, I think, among data minded folks uh, that I was talking to, like a lot of a lot of uh, debate one way or the other. You know, I think with Bernie, you uh, at the time, you know, I was saying that he 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 did about half a point worse than Biden, you know, in polls, um, sometimes a point, sometimes half a point. Uh, and I think there's a real argument that in retrospect, maybe these low trust voters who were being underrepresented by, by their surveys, you know, uh, maybe, maybe maybe they would have been more sympathetic to Bernie. But like the real issue with Bernie electorally is that he did outperform Biden among low education young whites. Um, but most voters are old and old people really don't like Bernie. And so that's, that's kind of a hard, a hard thing to get around. Elizabeth Warren was similar, except also low education whites didn't like her. I mean, it was like a funny thing where with Warren, high education, uh, white people and low education white people both disliked Elizabeth Warren, probably for different reasons. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> both of them correct reasons. <laughs> no, Just bringing no. people together. Uh, no, no, no. One of one of them probably bad. Um, but uh, and then you know, I think if you look at uh, if you look at uh, how like with the other big contenders were Buttigieg and Klobuchar, and what was really interesting about them is you know they underperform in these general election matchups, but that's because nobody knew who they were. If you restricted to people who did know who they were, which is like a little bit of a weird thing to do. They, they did do better than Biden. Um, uh, and there's some selection bias there. If you're like a Republican who knows who Pete Buttigieg is, you actually, you're, you probably watch a lot of MSNBC. I don't know. Um, so it's like a little hard to say. I think in retrospect, uh, given our weakness among non-whites, like both Buttigieg and Klobuchar would have had very real issues. You know, like we had, I, I had done some polling in the summer and like, 
you know, a solid 50% of African-Americans, you know, in the two-way had a negative opinion of Amy Klobuchar, which is amazing. That's a, no Democrat like that. You know, that had a lot to do with the aftermath of the George Floyd shootings. Um, so I don't know. Biden was probably the safest bet. I could be convinced that Bloomberg would have done better. Um, uh, but uh, I think that's my primary rundown. I, I, I personally, I think, I mean, I voted for I voted for Bernie both times uh, as as a, you know, I have my socialist card. One of my uh, my roommate actually told me that I was voting against my own self interest when I did that, but it's what it is. Now, when it comes to political prognostication, are there limits to what data can tell us? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, without. <laughs> Uh, all of this stupid stuff is, questions. Sam. No, yeah, no, all, no, 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 all, all of this, all of this stuff is really hard. Uh, I, I do think there's two ways to answer this question. And the first is just to stress that uh, there's just a lot of uncertainty. All of this stuff is really hard. You know, when I've been going out talking about trust and non-response bias and all of this stuff, I'm just really trying to hammer home that this is a really hard problem, way harder than people think. You know, I, I do data science and I tell other data scientists that you know I work in surveys. They kind of look down and they're just like, oh, you know, you're just so you're just surveying people and you're doing some weights. No, no, it's all, right. it's all, it's all very hard. Unlike um, hedge funds, which are, is a lock for yeah, you know, accuracy I, I, and <laughs> no marketing involved at all. Well, you know, I, I think, uh, most, most fields that require data, there's a lot of hard problems. Um, polling is really hard. It's not something I think that, uh, something I really struggle with is, you know, a lot of the clients I've worked with really want a lot more certainty out of, out of this stuff than we can provide. To me, it's like a mystery that polling works at all. Like if you look at what public pollsters do, you know, they're, they're just dialing these random people. And the way they, the way these likely voter screens work is they just ask people, are you registered to vote? Are you going to vote? And that's it. That's, that's how they determine who's going to like, it's crazy that this works at all. Um, so, and the more I've learned about polling, like the more shocked I am that any of this ever works. So that's all there. And I think that you can say, okay, well, fuck polling, but then all these other things, using fundamentals or whatever, like Nate Silver does all of the stuff that, you know, a reasonable person would do. And, you know, he's still wrong sometimes. That's not a knock against Nate Silver. He's a smart guy. Um, but, you know, I think the other way I'd answer this question is to say, well, okay, polling, uh, data can't tell us everything about the world. What about non-data stuff? You know, should we be doing focus groups? Should we, uh, you know, should we be counting yard signs? And, you know, I think I think the answer is that for the most part, if you have one person who forms an opinion based on that includes polling and data and one person who doesn't, the former is going to be better at making predictions than the latter person. And that is a fact about the world that is true. The flip side of that is I do think it is useful. There's something I really like about politics. You know, I was a math major and I could have worked on a lot of things. And what I'm really happy about politics is that like, you know, we're fundamentally studying people. You know, why people believe what they believe, why pe how people get persuaded, you know, how do you get somebody to vote? And, you know, if you're studying people, then, uh, you know, a real advantage that people have that, you know, if you're doing biology, you know, uh, you don't have is that you can talk to people. Uh, as a human, like you can't, you can't cross-examine cells and be like, why, why are you doing this? You know, you can't do that. But with people, you really can. And I, I find that, you know, having uh, a real knowing things about people reading history. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a, it's a, something that I find very useful in my field is just, you know, reading history, reading, uh, following foreign politics, because, you know, one of the problems following us politics, you have a real small sample size 
And so I think people kind of get lost. Uh, and, you know, by looking at what's happening abroad, you can really piece together like how political dynamics work and kind of come into things with a little bit more of a superstructure. And, you know, I also think it's useful, you know, if you go to a Trump rally and you look around and you ask yourself, do any of these people answer phone calls? Probably not. Um, right. So how do we, how do we get, get them to? How do we get these guys to answer the phone? How do we get? If you could get them to answer the phone, they wouldn't be voting for Trump. No, so all right. Too. He needs to. They tell would have him. high social trust, and they wouldn't want to be fascists. Yeah, right. yeah. No, I mean it is a real. It's it's a funny thing with the social trust theory because uh, you know it's, it's just it's it's actually been documented for a long time. Like you know when Putnam did his social trust stuff with bowling alone and all of that, he actually went and he looked. Uh, areas with low social trust have lower census response rates, you know, controlling for a bunch of other factors. This is like well-known stuff. Um, and so it just used to not matter because social trust used to be uncorrelated. In terms of how you get these people on the phone, I don't know. I, I think the answer is you can't. I personally don't do phone surveys anymore. I don't think it's workable. It's too expensive. It's, it's it, like I, I think phone surveys uh, are just kind of kind of dead as a, as a field. Um, but, uh, you know, I think these web panels do a lot of really interesting things. You know, they... They, uh, you run out of lives on Candy Crush and they're like, oh, take the survey and then you don't have to pay for more lives or whatever. Uh, and that's all cool. You know, the problem with the web surveys is that you get different problems. They're weird in different ways. You know, like, uh, uh, you get a lot of, like, if you're, if people are getting paid 30 cents to take a survey, you're going to get a lot of people in disability, a lot of people who are self-employed. Um, you know, I, I, I remember one thing we measured, we were doing some stuff, uh, some polling in the Connor Lamb race, and we were initially worried that we'd have trouble getting enough responses in a congressional district. And, uh, we actually got plenty and we looked and something like 30% of respondents indicated that they were formerly union members. And you're just like, Oh man, wages, neoliberalism, really? Uh, so it's all, <laughs> yeah, no, it's real. It, it's real. It, it, it's, it's real. It's real though. You, you can get a lot of, you can get a lot of, uh, survey respondents in West Virginia and it's a lot harder to get them in like, you know, Orange County, you know, that's just the reality. So, I know you're sort of a proponent of like uh, median voter theory, and um, but there's there's one group that I feel like maybe throws a bit of a wrench into that that Biden didn't do very well with, and that is uh, Bernie can uh, Bernie Sanders campaign staffers. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't get them on board. Didn't feel yeah, we really tried. That's just so really unnecessarily divisive. <laughs> It's true. No, it's I mean, not. you would you just... think, you would think that that would be an easy sell. You can't stop relitigating. Uh, no, but it's a problem for you know not living in an authoritarian state. If we can't get, you know, I would love to see the Republican Party fractured like that, right? Like I would. Maybe love to it'll see happen, right dude. It seems like it might I mean, happen. It's possible. It's possible, right? But uh, I guess the question is... I mean, low social trust. They're losing trust with elections. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, totally. You have his his former lawyer telling people not to vote and to boycott the vote in Georgia. I mean, yeah, it's it's pretty insane. Um, But I guess my question is, is is the faction on the left hurting us? Is that something that we have data on or we can see or... Yeah. um, I I mean, I I think that... There's an enormous. Is that I, just people on Twitter? You know? I, I mean, I used to be guilty of this. I think there's an enormous, enormous amount of rationalization uh, to, to keep people away from the obvious fact that 
moderates do better or better at winning elections on average. <laughs> um, it is just clearly true. You know, I, 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 I don't I don't like it. I'm, I'm a very left wing guy. I would really like uh, if the path to winning was just to go out and, you know, have these calls for revolutionary uh, socialism and we could just sing Pete Seeger songs on the stage and it'd be lovely. That's the politics that I want. It'd be very fun. Um, but, you know, it's not the politics we have. Uh, I think that there's a lot of different strands of evidence. I, you know, one of my favorites, you know, is uh, David Brockman. He did this paper about how moderates aren't moderate. He did this big ideological survey. And something that's really clear from it is that people do pick, uh, do pick candidates on the basis of ideological positioning. You know, one of my, I think, most radical takes is I think 2016 was about issues. You know, if you look at who's, uh, one of my favorite cost tabs is you look at who, who agreed with us on healthcare and disagreed with us on immigration. And about 12% of the population fits that category. And Obama got about 60% of those voters and Clinton got about 40%. And that actually tells the story. Uh, and I think people don't, uh, don't realize this because it's obscured by this kind of dual nature of the electorate, where you have hard partisans, you know, Democrats and Republicans, who are Democrats and Republicans because of values. Uh, symbolic representation is what the political scientists call it. You know, like me, I'm like a rootless cosmopolitan Jewish person who lives in New York. And, you know, I like, I like weird ethnic food and raves and whatever. And so as a result, like I, of course, I'm going to be a liberal and I'm going to be a Democrat and I'm going to support whatever Democrats say. And, you know, at some point, uh, Democrats used to be against free trade and now apparently they are. And, you know, my views would have switched in tandem. And in the same way, you know, with immigration, I think it's really interesting. Like there used to not be a partisan gap in immigration views as recently as 2006. Like every single liberal you know, like, uh, actually, most of them had fairly conservative views on immigration 15 years ago. And then there were, there were, you know, there was elite signaling that made us change our views. And so I think that for us, we're just like, oh, you know, the problem with Democrats is that we're just talking too much about these issues. And we just talk, we need to talk more about our values. But like, the problem is that swing voters don't share our values. If they did, they would be Democrats. Uh, and so swing voters, you know, they're either cross-pressured um, on the symbolic ties, like maybe they're like, I don't know, military veterans who are black or, you know, maybe they're like union members who are, you know, um, who are, uh, who live in a police household or, you know, whatever. There's like a lot of a lot of ways that, you know, there's an intersectionality of coalition politics, uh, but they don't buy into kind of these liberal these liberal values. Uh, and instead, they pick parties on the basis of issues. And I think it's, it's something that is hard because, you know, you're about 20% of the population in the center really is just kind of picking on the basis of issue congruence, while the other 80% of people are kind of doing this whole tribal signaling thing. And I think it's really easy for that 80% to not realize that the 20% isn't like them. Um, but they're not. If they were, they wouldn't be swing voters. And so, you know, I think this shows up in a lot of ways. And there really is just a lot of political science to kind of get at this obvious fact, which is that politics is about finding issues that voters care about and talking about them. Uh, and I think, you know, the other factoid I'll say is just to talk about how in 20, in 2016, you know, Democrats had the lowest amount of issue-based content of any presidential election ever. Uh, nor, uh, and I think that that played a really big role. You know, there were all of these Midwestern swing voters who were like, why are you telling me that Donald Trump is a horrible person? I'm really concerned about what he's saying about the border or about trade or about, you know, crime. And you're just playing these clips of Donald Trump making fun of disabled people. Um, and, you know, that's how 
That's how they, they people that's how they people did not we could not connect people to the idea that we shouldn't have a crazy president that having a crazy president carried tail risks that like that they needed to be aware of and we couldn't we couldn't get it to land with the suburban people with a lot of the suburban people who got it this time yeah i mean i i think there's a real uh there's a real dynamic there it's funny you mentioned tail risk my roommate's an effective altruist so I, Lives to work with a, a lot of them, uh, but you know, I, I think that a really important angle here is that Trump was rated as more moderate in 2016 than Hillary Clinton. Trump in 2016 was rated as actually one of the most moderate people to ever run for office, and I think that people really don't want radical, sweeping, transformational change, and it just shows the power of really being seen as moderate, that you can be crazy and mean. And, but if people are like, Oh, he seems like he has the right views on stuff. They'll actually cut you a lot of slack, which I think is the opposite of how Democrats usually see things because they don't realize that they actually have a bunch of really unpopular views in their, in their little, in their co in their coalition bundle. And so they're just like, Oh man, people want universal healthcare. Why, why isn't, why aren't people voting for us? And the answer is, well, there's some things that are, less popular that we also advocate because polling healthcare is difficult healthcare is nebulous and complicated and you can't when you try to boil it down to a phrase what are you talking about sam it is (laughs) it's not it's not as difficult to poll as other things i mean i think polling all issues are hard like if you go and you say should the government provide, make sure that everyone has health insurance. I don't know, 60, 70% of people would say yes. Um, But if you say something, and then people say, oh, Medicare for all is popular. But then if you say, should private health insurance be banned? 20% of people say yes. Um, And in practice, if you say, and then in practice, if you say, all right, should the government uh, provide health care to everyone and pay for it with a 9% payroll tax? Then no one says yes, you know? Um, So so it's it's really hard. Um, this, This is like one of the, like, I'm not... I think it's it's the root. You know, I'm not sitting here saying, "Oh man, all these Democrats are so so dumb." AOC staff, they're so dumb. Like, actually, it's really hard to know what's popular and what's not because measurement is really hard. And I think it's really easy to delude yourself um, about what things are popular and what things aren't. But some things that AOC's proposed ha- are super popular. You know, one of my favorites. I, I don't think the Alt Center likes this, but you know, uh, capping interest rates, uh, credit card interest rates at 15 percent, loan shark prevention act. Sure, sure, oh. sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> do, do I still get my points? Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, so Probably. You don't have any real material interest beyond your... <laughs> Never mind. I think material interests are overrated in terms of politics. I, I think materialist interests... I agree with you. Real, real statement. I think materialist interests are super overrated in politics. You know, I like to... It's an evergreen statement that materialism is dead. Uh, you know, like, I, I think this is a really underrated dynamic in politics. Like, if you look at 2016, it would have been really ideologically convenient. Like, I think there was this kind of, you know, race class narrative-ish thing that kind of came about or like, oh, and Pete Buttigieg, you know, he was out saying this. And so was Bernie and so are these other people that like, you know, the reason why all of these working class white people, you know, decided to vote for a fascist is because they were just screwed by, you know, decades of neoliberalism and they had no other choice to turn, you know, no other place to go. Um, and, you know, I, if that was true, it'd be one thing, um, but it's probably not true. And I, I don't know, it's good politics. If I was running for office and I was on CNN, I would be like, oh yeah, we've been betrayed and that's why we need to stand with the working class or whatever. But like, you know, I think if you look at the election results, you know, uh, it's definitely true that like 
most places that Trump did really well in have been kind of screwed by various macroeconomic uh, developments in the last, you know, 30 years. You know, like if you're looking at, I don't know, Northwest Indiana, uh, used to be manufacturing, one of the manufacturing capitals of the world, seriously deindustrialized in the 2000s, and then actually even more over Obama's tenure. Uh, I think like there are counties where the share of people working in manufacturing dropped by half. And I actually visited one of these counties and I met an Obama Trump voter who was really, he uh, he used to work at, a, I think it was a factory that made... Uh, like mint products. Uh, this county is also known for making uh, corrugated trailer, uh, corrugated trailers, I think. And now he had to work at a chicken farm. He wasn't really very happy about that. It's a lot less pleasant. And uh, so that, that exists. And so it's really easy to tell that story. But there were some places that were doing really well, like eastern Iowa, for example. Uh, traditionally, Obama did very well there in 2008 and 2012. People call it like the driftless area. And, you know, their unemployment was 2% because they made soybeans that they sold to China. Uh, and it was, it was a booming, booming business. Um, and they just, they swung to Trump just as much. So I, I think, you know, I, the reason why these shifts are happening are because of changes in culture. And I think that's like the big picture thing that, you know, I, I, I want to say about, you know, what, what's happening in our politics and why we see this education polarization is that there are these really big cultural divides between people who have college degrees and people who don't. And it used to be that not that many people had college degrees as recently as, you know, 30 years ago, they were, they were not a large enough share of the electorate to build a coalition around, but now they are. And it's kind of hard. It's hard to imagine how you wouldn't see this kind of polarization around these values. And, you know, those, those cultural values can take a lot of forms you know, whether it's social trust or racial resentment or, I don't know, other things. Um, but I think that's what's happening. I don't, I don't think it's material self-interest. Now, something really interesting about uh, a ch- shifting culture and perhaps the uh, uh, Beltway opinion class not understanding it is I recall when Oprah used to uh, do segments for, um, for 60 Minutes, I want to say, 2017 2018 she had a focus like a frank luntz type focus group of uh democrats republicans and a lot of swing people uh there was um uh an asian american woman who voted bush obama and then trump at that point and so you had an interesting uh mix of opinions and takes from across the spectrum and at one point oprah asked now we've we've seen some polling that says more and more people in America, believe we're on the verge of civil war. And everyone in that room, everyone was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's going to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And Oprah was like, what? What are you guys, <laughs> what are you, t- what are you talking about? I and love every- that. First of all, I love this Oprah impression you're doing. Like you have like an <laughs> <No>. Oprah voice. <laughs> Sounds more Elizabeth Warren. Well, it's just really interesting because all of these people from and across they've America, that. they've pulled like, that. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna be, we're gonna have a civil war, Oprah. And civil she's war like, pulls high. Like people think, like if they've pulled civil war recently, and it's like forty percent of people think there's gonna be one. Oh, my favorite poll was the. Uh, Do you believe it's okay to use violence to achieve political aims? And it just. Red and blue were like, yeah, oh yeah, definitely above fifty percent. Twenty fourteen, it was like single well, digits. That was what World War Two was about. I mean, and on. then now it's like, oh yeah, yeah, that's fine. I mean, you know that that specific poll, probably some some panel differences. I think it was a little controversial, but, but you know, I, I think that one of the 
I've been very pessimistic about American politics for a very long time. And I, I, I think I've honestly gotten like a little bit of a sick sense of, uh, of joy in some senses of just, you know, finally everyone else is understanding how bleak this all is. Yeah, <laughs> that was, that was yeah. the real, um, you know, I think Matthew Iglesias, one of his best things he's ever written was, you know, his piece on, uh, American democracy is doomed, uh, which he wrote in 2015 pre-Trump. Uh, and I think was, was right. I think he accurately, you know, uh, called out all of these giant structural biases that, uh, keep Republicans in power and the brinkmanship and, you know, all these other things. Um, and yeah, I, I think, you know, if you look at the coup that Trump attempted, you know, it looks like it's going to fail, but I think it's worth pointing out. It, it really came very close to succeeding to an extent to which I think people don't realize. Um, like the Wisconsin Supreme Court, you know, they refused, they threw out his thing. That was a 4-3 decision. Um, uh, only one Republican defected. Uh, and that that's, that's a real, it's a real point. You know, I think that if you look at these state legislatures, you know, what kept it from happening, what kept this whole state legislators, you know, throw out the election and send an alternative slate. Like the thing that happened is that these these state legislative majorities that the Republicans have weren't that large. Um, and so it would have taken only two or three defectors in Wisconsin, for example, to stop it. And yeah, out of like, I don't know, 16 Republican state senators, like three of them still believe in democracy, but only three. Right. <laughs> and they're, and, and they're, and they're going to be gone soon, you know, in like five how, years. How does this not like scare the shit out of swing voters? You know what I mean? It's like, like, uh, they're like, people say defund the play, police. Yeah, and... I, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, forget swing voters. I work in democratic politics. And uh, I, I don't, I think that now people are starting to wake up. But even, even then, you know, I, I think it's just like a really weird, crazy thing. Be like, uh, like, oh, the other side is really desperate to, you know, overthrow America. Like, even Republicans don't. Like, you see Carl Smith or whatever, and even they don't really believe it. But I think it's it's it's, it's there. Like, I think if you flash forward, um, you know, I, I think there are still a lot of not moderate Republicans. All the moderate Republicans are gone. But, you know, there, there are some pro, you know, there are so, some small D Democrat Republicans. And, um, you know, they'll, they'll be gone soon. Yeah, I think I think you got I think you got to give a shout out to uh, fascism for having some unique strengths. Shout out to fascism. It has He's some not... unique strengths and unique possibilities that you can explore where Trump can like attempt a coup, right? And like he's legitimately trying it. But because um, fascism seems ridiculous at times, um, some people are just like, "Oh, well that just won't happen." Like that's crazy. He's not going to actually right. do it, right? Right. So he can actually attempt it, but until it until it occurs, people just refuse to believe it. Yeah. Right. Until there's mass graves and shit, people don't take it. That's yeah. People. Well, I mean, people. That's a extreme version of it, but sure, I, people did that with Hitler, right? I, I mean, people. I'll go in a more uh, you know in a more measured direction. I people don't believe when people like I, I I will say like you know I spent most of the fall in Miami and I would overhear people talking about politics and something I found really surprising was there were just I overheard I think I think twice which is crazy just young people talking to each other about politics and like making fun of democrats for saying that Amy Comey Barrett would 
repeal Roe v. Wade. There's just like, there's no way that would happen. Uh, and it's like, uh, it's actually a very reasonable thing that could happen. You have, you know, like, mm. I think, I think this was a problem in 2012 where there were these swing, you know, there were these focus groups and we would try to say, hey, Republicans want to get rid of food stamps and, you know, Medicare and all. And they would just kind of be like, no, I don't, I don't believe it. And people have really short memories. Like what's crazy about the Affordable Care Act repeal that the Republicans tried is, you know, it did hurt their polling. Like at some point people woke up and they were like, oh man, Republicans really do want to cut the welfare state. And then their, their performance in polls tanked, but it just turned out, I don't know, two years later, voters forgot. It's all, it's all really Well, they didn't do it. Yeah. Right. So they chickened out. Um, it's the same thing with Social Security, right? They didn't actually do it, so there's no long-term consequence. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it would be, um, it would be. This raises a natural question where a lot of people look at what the Republicans do and say, "Oh man, I wish we could do that. Why aren't we more like them?" And I think, you know, the answer is the Republican strategy is like a totally reasonable strategy if you can consistently win the vote with like forty, you know, hold power with forty-seven or forty-eight percent of the vote. I think, I think the Republicans are doing a pretty good job, you know, at, you know, given their ideological aims. I think a lot of people want to like paint what Republicans have been doing as irrational. And, you know, that's what makes me pe- a little pessimistic about the future is, you know, I think, I think all of this has benefited them. And I think it would be kind of dumb of them to stop. So that's, 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 you know, it's ending on a bright note. All right. How do we get these non-college whites back on our side? Yeah. I mean, it's really important. I, I really, cause I'll tell people we really have to do this. And they're just like, you know, you can't, it's just not possible. And I, I don't know, it might, it might be impossible. Um, but I think the reality is if we don't get back to roughly 2012 levels of non-college white support, our ability to, you know, ever win the Senate is basically not there. The math is really much more brutal um, than people realize. Uh, and so in terms of how you do it, I think the median voter theorem is right. I mean, I think that it's really sucks that like we have to get some person in Montana who voted for Trump twice um, to uh, support our agenda in order to get things through. But, you know, I, I think that it is possible. Like at the end of the day, only uh, only about 40 percent of the country identifies as conservative. And right now we win like 60 percent of moderates and we have to raise that to like 65. It is like a totally doable thing. It just probably requires a lot of both symbolic and concrete um, compromise. And it's not super clear to me that the Democratic Party is like capable of doing that. Um, you know, the, the centripetal forces that have made this education realignment happen are very powerful. It's, but, uh, you know, it's, it's what has to happen. And I think, you know, the formula for doing it, I think, you know, is you have to shift the focus, you know, you have to shift your focus to pushing broadly popular policies. You have to get the media to cover that you're talking about those policies. And you also, it's hard. And then you also have to uh, push, push candidates who, you know, uh, working class people identify with, which is itself hard. We need like a hundred testers. We need a hundred John testers and spread them around, you know, state houses, get some state house testers. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think it is a real problem that if you look at what the data generating process is for these candidates, you know, is generally we run these doctors and lawyers, nonprofit folks, um, like, because the people who work in democratic politics are all people like me, you know, they're all hyper liberal, 
very liberal, highly educated. Like there are no true moderates in the Democratic Party. Like I'm sure even Joe Manchin in his heart of hearts, I'm sure he's pretty liberal. I don't know. Um, and so and I think that voters are getting more informed and they're like starting to learn that. It's, it's hard. You know, the limits of entryism, you know. Um, but I think the answer is that Democrats have to stop talking about unpopular things and not just Democrats. Basically, like this is the problem is that it's one thing for Joe Biden to talk about healthcare. He largely did that. You know, the problem is you also need not just AOC, but you need like Vox to talk about healthcare. Like you need to get like the whole, because the problem we have right now is if like a single high, like if, if people are just reading Facebook and they see a bunch of liberal, their liberal friends arguing that we need to defund the police in an old world, they would have went, wow, my liberal friends are crazy, but Joe, got, Joe Biden's got my back. He says that we don't need to defund the police. They've, I think people have now fairly accurately decomposed that, uh, you know, all of these candidates are just kind of a show and that really is... Oh, right. Uh, the discourse it, it, matters. Yeah. Twitter no, discourse, is real life. Yeah, I, I think it, it matters. And to be clear, I think controlling the discourse is like a totally solvable problem. We're talking about like... 200 people who need to coordinate with each other. And these 200 people are highly dependent on foundation dollars and a bunch of things. So you could do it. Uh, it is like a, but it's a, it's a difficult coordination problem. And it's one that, you know, we have to methodically solve. I think we just got to sell the left on centrism. No, we're not centrist, David. We're not centrist. The alt center <laughs> is not centrism. Um, but um, I just, I just don't want, you know, to live in an authoritarian state. And that seems like possible now. Like it doesn't seem that crazy. Hopefully Biden is like that to not happen. You know, uh, I mean, I will say it is really dangerous for politics to court. You know, I think right now we are kind of orienting around authoritarianism where the authoritarians are voting for the right and the non-authoritarians voting for the left. That's really bad. It's really actually really bad Um, because the other side's going to win half the time. And so in order for, things to get better we really need to return to this world where like all of these people who are arguably kind of bad people you know um you know they're they might have really regressive racial views they might uh not believe in rule of law we need to get those people to vote for democrats again because they used to um because otherwise all the bad people concentrate in one party and that's really dangerous and so the way to do this is you know talking more about economic issues concrete plans to make people's lives better but that's the challenge because um, right now, basically every decent person with integrity um, uh, is a Democrat, and that's not good. That's not it's bad, bad equilibrium. All right. Well, maybe we should end it on that happy note. Thanks so, thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, really great to have you. Yeah, no, this was super fun. It was uh, more laid back than a lot of my other uh, podcasts. That's for sure. So. Oh, well, <laughs> so find one that's more laid back than us. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. This like, is the, we were super buttoned up for you. Yes, yeah, no. I, I only had like a quarter of an edible, and I, I tried to stay focused. Well, I'm only I'm only jealous, uh, but you know it's very different than like Yasha Monk. You know, it's very very, <laughs> it's like, oh, very serious. So, anyway, this is super fun. Thanks so much. All right, for, thanks. Like, Okay, guys, that was great. We don't need to. We we have an hour and a half already. Yeah. Bye.